0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Timothy Revel. This is the show that features science-linked delights from popular culture. Sometimes we interview the world's most exciting authors about fascinating books. Other times we delve into the science behind a movie or a TV show. And other times we do something completely different. This week, it's the first of all of those options. Our comment and culture editor, Alison Flood, and her 10-year-old daughter, Jenny, spoke with academic, TV presenter, and now children's book author, Alice Roberts, about her new book, Wolf Road. The book's main character is a prehistoric girl called Thule, who is hungry for adventure. While she is traveling to her summer camp, she meets a strange boy and can't help but investigate what he is up to and who he is. Alice began by telling Alison what made her start writing a children's book in the first place.
1: I've kind of dabbled with bits of fiction in previous books, and I've written lots of factual books, which are generally about the human body or about archaeology and genetics. are so written a series of books that I just finished the last one in a series of three actually which are about bringing together archaeology and genetics mm-hmm. to to really interrogate the past and um i've written just little bits of fiction within those where i've allowed myself to go off on on flights of fancy and in one particular book where i was writing about domesticated animals including dogs i'd allowed myself to go off on a bit of a fictional flight of fantasy about the first wolf that was domesticated. And then actually I wanted to write about uh, the ice age. I wanted to immerse people in that kind of ancient environment and that ancient time and use archeology span to build a world that then a story could unfold in. And the story itself was inspired by recent revelations from ancient genetics as well.
2: Great, so tell us a little bit more about the story then. What's going on in this novel? Who are we telling the story of? We? We're telling
1: the story of a 12-year-old girl called Tilly. And she is at that stage in her life where she's very self-assured. She's very competent. She's a very good hunter. So she lives in a, in a group of people in a small tribe. The rhythm of their life is that they are migrating every year along a river valley from inland where they, they live in cave shelters, um, rock shelters. And then they move down the river valley, and they're, they're largely following this this great herd of reindeer that kind of comes together and migrates in the spring. And so the book is is about her and her tribe setting off on this on this annual journey that they always make in the spring, stopping off to fish for some salmon on the way, and then eventually ending up at the summer camp, which is at an estuary close to the close to the sea. But along the way, things happen which which really surprise her. So there's a surprise meeting. So she's. She kind of thinks she's got it all figured out. She understands how her tribe works. As I said, she's really good at hunting. She can look after herself. She's very capable. And she thinks she knows everything about the world, pretty much. And then she meets somebody who makes her think, oh, my goodness, the world is much stranger and bigger than, than I imagined. What are these uh, recent discoveries that you mentioned that kind of inspired you to start writing? The recent discoveries come from ancient genetics, and they show us that modern humans so our own species homo sapiens came into contact with other groups of humans so people who are human who are still the same genus as us but are a bit different so neanderthals in particular so we know that when modern human hunters first came into europe and into the near east as well that they made contact with neanderthals there have been suggestions of that from the archaeology because they're a kind of clues in the culture that suggest that there might have been some contact. There were some skeletons that some people had suggested might have been evidence of contact, in that they showed that there was hybridisation, so there was interbreeding between, between modern humans and Neanderthals. But I think those, that kind of information or that kind of data was, was really difficult and, and not clear at all until the genetics came along. Mm-hmm. And in 2010, we had the first paper which showed absolutely that Neanderthals and modern humans had come into contact with each other and that they had been interbreeding between those groups. So those two groups had mixed together and we've all got a bit of Neanderthal DNA in us.
2: It's one of those moments that, that you feel like you wish you could have been there to see more about it. And I guess the only mm. thing we can, well, you can, you can imagine it into fiction
1: and, and bring it to life that way. A lot of the time when we imagine what these scenarios might have, might have been like in the past, we often frame them in terms of adults. And I thought, actually, I want it to be young people. I I want that first contact between modern humans and Neanderthals to be be through the eyes of young people. Mm. I think they'll react differently. The light was fading fast. Wolves howled again. She cowered a little at the noise, but it was some distance away, making up her mind and bridging between the birch trunk and the cliff. So she's pushing herself. So she's safe. She lowered herself down beside the pup. Steadying herself with one hand, gripping the birch tree, she let her bag slip off her shoulder and reached out towards the small wolf. It pulled its lips back, baring its sharp little teeth at her. And now it tried to move, flailing with its front paws, edging away, pulling a damaged back leg along behind it. Suddenly, Toodie slipped. Her mouth and nose plunged into the snow. She lifted her head and gasped for air. But she was safe, still holding the birch with one hand. The pup twisted round towards her face, half buried in the snow. Tuli closed her eyes, half expecting the snap of jaws and those pin-sharp teeth to be buried in her cheek. Nothing happened. Then she tentatively opened her eyes. And the pup's face was right there, not growling, not nipping, just looking at her. It seemed that they both exhaled at the same time. (sighs) Their two puffs of breath mist mingling in the air.
2: Hi, I'm Jenny and I'm 10 and I really like Wolf Road. I'm going to ask you some questions now about it. Thank you. I love lupa. Do you think people really made pets out of wolf cubs? Is that how wolves became dogs?
1: Well, so we know absolutely that dogs are from wolves. So we can tell that because of um, particularly genetics. And there's a lovely friend of mine called P- Pontus Scoglund who works at the Crick Institute here in London. And he's done some brilliant work he and his team have done some brilliant work looking at the dna of dogs and the dna of wolves and dna of ancient wolves as well so they get dna out of very very ancient bones and we're able to see from that well, the dna tells you how related things are and what we're able to see from that is that dogs are very close relations of wolves and they're such close relations that at some point back in the past they had a common ancestor it Great, 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 you know, going back. Yeah. Grandmother or grandfather. And it goes back twenty to 30,000 years ago. So we know that um, dogs came from wolves. So yes, somehow, somehow wolves must have ended up living with humans and becoming domesticated dogs. We think it happened several times and it might have been different every time. So you, you can think about the ways that might have happened. It might have been somebody like Thule finding a helpless wolf pup and looking after it and befriending it. Or it might have been that there are wolves that are coming in to scavenge in the camp. And so if there's, you know, if there's a bit of meat or food left out, they'll maybe creep in and come and eat a little bit. Mm. And then maybe they're, maybe they're very friendly wolves and the, and the people start to not just tolerate them, but actually quite like them being around. Mm. So we think about lots of ways in which it happened. But what we know absolutely is that it did happen because our dogs are actually wolves, yeah. they were wolves.
2: How do you know about things like what people wore and how they made their houses? Wouldn't clothes and tents have rotted
1: away by now? That's a great question. Yeah, so most, of, most things that are made out of organic materials and, and that means kind of anything that's made out of cloth or leather or wood or grasses, most of that will have, will have rotted away and so we don't get it archaeologically. So archaeologically we're just left with the hard things which might be things made of stone, bone, antler, that kind of thing, shells. So we do have to do a bit of imagining, but if we have, for instance, a a burial where somebody has been laid in the grave and all that we've got then are the bones and then the hard objects that were buried with them, we might be able to see, for instance, that there's maybe a row of, of teeth that have been pierced to make an independence, and they're kind of sitting up around the neck. So you think, okay, I haven't got the string, these were on but that's clearly a necklace yeah and the same with um, you know if there's lots of ivory beads in particular places then maybe those were sewn onto clothes um, mm. so we get clues like that and sometimes there's sometimes there's really really kind of amazing clues like there's a there's a particular imprint of a bit of woven cloth so I think I think that in Tuli's time which is probably about 30,000 years ago People definitely had needles. So we know that there are bone needles. So we know that they're going to be sewing their clothes. So that gives you a big clue Mm -hmm. as to what those clothes might have been like. And also there's probably some weaving as well. So we don't have any fabric, any woven fabric from that long ago. But there is this little imprint, which I think is from the Czech Republic. And it's from somebody who's knelt on a bit of mud, a bit of clay. And they were obviously wearing something which was woven cloth because you've got the imprint of the woven cloth. So even though we don't have the woven and cloth and that hasn't survived, we've got an imprint of it. And so we've got that amazing, I love that, that there's these little yeah. clues that you can draw.
2: At the end, it sets it up for a sequel. Is there going to be one? There
1: definitely is. I'm writing it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does set it up for a sequel. So yeah, it, it is, the journey continues, the adventure continues. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Tell us a
2: little bit then about the research that, that you did for this. Did, did you go to the Arctic?
1: I have been to the Arctic. You- on a number of occasions and, and for quite long periods of time. So, so the research, I suppose, is, is based on you know, archaeological objects, archaeological finds. Mm. There's a scene where they're entering a cave and there's a, there's a strange circle of stalagmites, for instance, on the floor, and that's a real, that's a real archaeological uh, site. Where is that? Um, that's in the south of France, Bruniquel right. Cave in the south yeah. of France. But it, yeah, aside from that, I've, I've been really lucky to spend quite a bit of time in the Arctic living with reindeer herders and at various times of the year as well so I've been out to northern Siberia in winter when it's minus 40 degrees and learned about how people survive in in those kind of um, what seemed to us to be extreme environments but which to the reindeer herders of the arctic are just you know that it's just what you do Mm. and one of the hilarious things about that was that we turned up I was filming a series about ice age ice age animals it's back on it's back on BBC iPlayer at the moment, Amazing. which is brilliant. I was filming that series and, uh, and also I was out in Siberia actually for The Incredible Human Journey, which was my first big mm. landmark on the BBC. I was lucky to film both in the Arctic and also in, in Africa with, with various groups of hunter-gatherers in Africa. And those experiences have been incredible, like really enriching, make you look at your own culture in a different way. But yeah, so I mean, going back to the Arctic, I remember turning up in the Arctic with these you know, really fantastic, polar explorer boots and the reindeer herd is basically saying we're not going to take you further north unless you put reindeer fur boots on (laughs) because those boots are rubbish the reindeer fur boots are much better and you kind of go really and you put the reindeer fur boots on and go oh my god they're right right (laughs) and they're very simply made so i had these amazing reindeer boots which are made out of reindeer fur sewn so the fur facing outwards and then inners which are just sewn with um fluffier fur Hmm. facing inwards and that's it that's what they are, yeah. and they're just superb. I mean, you know, Ranger know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was able to bring some of my own kind of personal experiences, having, mm. having been to the Arctic, having spent time with um, Nenets people, Evenki people, and, and bring that to bear as well on, mm. you know, try, trying to kind of recreate that ancient yeah. way of life. Yeah. yeah.
2: How about the tools? One thing I really loved in the book is how your main character Tuli, how her dad has a different perspective yeah, to, to the other yeah. people in the tribe. Like he's, he sees humans as different to animals. He wants to try and make the next better tool rather yeah. than keeping things the way that they always ha- have been. Yeah. Yeah, tell us about the, the kind of the, the tools that, that that have been found that I guess play play into. Yeah,
1: the... yeah. So I, I think throughout human history, you mm-hmm. and prehistory, you see innovations occurring, and of course we don't. We're very unlikely archaeologically to pick up the first time that somebody's thought of a particular thing. By the time we start to see it archaeologically, it's probably an idea that's quite embedded. And there are some ideas that kind of come and go and you know, might, might disappear for a bit and then come back again. But for instance, he's experimenting with how to throw a spear further. And he's thinking about how he can do that and, and maybe something that lengthens his arm. So he comes up with this idea of a, of a dart thrower or a spear thrower. And we know that these were you know, starting to be made in the Upper Paleolithic. And it would have been quite a quite a big leap in terms of technology, because you, c- you can throw once you've extended your arm. It's a bit if you haven't used a spear thrower, I think the easiest way to think about it is those ball chuckers that you can get for dogs mm-hmm. and how much further you can throw a ball with a ball chucker than you can just with your hand. Yeah. And it's a similar kind of thing, so the, the speed and the, and the distance is, is transformative. So yeah, he's, he's constantly going, how can I improve things? And then there's other men in the tribe who are going, just leave things as they are. You know, we've got this stuff, it works. And we, of course, we see that today with modern technology as well. Yeah. There's always that kind of push-pull between going, actually, you know, we think the technology's fine, we don't need to push it any further, and then other people going, let's innovate. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: we need the innovators, definitely. Mm. Do you think it's important for children to understand more about, about their past and, and where we came from?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, and I suppose that's partly my motivation for writing the book. I would have said my main motivation is, is the story and thinking about being human that far back in the past. I think that sometimes we, I don't know, it seems, it seems so distant. Um, so I did want to bring that alive. But I think, it's, I think it's great to have that very deep perspective and to think about how climate has changed over time and how humans have responded to that. To think about the ways that humans have interacted with the natural world. And it puts, I think it puts us in context in, in the modern day as well, you know, in our post-industrial, very advanced technologically societies. Mm. I think that we just assume that the way we're living is normal and we can see that people have lived and um, interacted with the natural world in a whole range of different ways, yeah.
2: From your perspective, what have your studies of past
1: societies told you about modern
2: society and how to solve its problems?
1: I think a long view, looking back at the past, is really useful because it shows us a number of things. It shows us that humans have coped, for instance, with, with climate change in the past, but if you're looking at that carefully, you see that when the major climate transformations happened, humans were not living in the way that we live now, so they were not living in large, settled communities. So our civilizations have grown up in a period of extremely stable climate. And although I think you you can sometimes hear that rhetoric that, oh, well, climate has changed in the past and we'll be able to adapt to it, I think you could if you were small bands of hunter-gatherers, but not if you're, you know, vast, settled communities and cities. I also think that if you're talking about sustaining a, a, a large global population, it's going to be very difficult in the face of extreme changes in climate. Mm. So it's, it's important to have that long view. I think largely studying the past and, and looking at how humans have, have responded to big, big challenges gives me grounds for optimism. I think that it shows me that we are flexible and adaptable, we can develop technologies. I think the, I think the big issue is going to be how well we work together globally. Because we kind of have those capabilities, but we need to be able to tackle that on a global scale and we need to make sure that people aren't left behind. Mm. And I think that one of the things over the last few years, which has given me enormous grounds for hope, has been the scientific response to COVID. We saw an incredible response where it rose above national boundaries. It became a, a truly kind of supranational response to, to this enormous challenge. And the way that scientists were sharing their data, sharing ideas, was just incredible.
2: So Wolf Road is just out. What else are you up to at the moment, research-wise or television-wise,
1: writing-wise? What's next? So I've just finished another book, which um, I think is going to be published next spring, which follows on in my series of um, archaeology and genetics, burial archaeology, looking at what ancient human remains can can tell us about the past. So I wrote one about prehistory called Ancestors. One about the the first millennium, so a lot of Romans, Anglo Saxons, and Vikings in it, which was called Buried, and then this latest one is called Crypt, so it it is ABC, and (laughs) um, and it is about mostly about diseases, death, diseases and violence in the Middle Ages, so pathology in the Middle Ages, and uh, ranges across plague and syphilis and leprosy and various massacres that occurred. And, and looking at the history and marrying the history together with the, with the archaeological evidence as well. And also an update on the Thousand Ancient Genomes project because I've been working with colleagues in the Crick Institute, Pontus Scoglund and his DNA lab, and particular in particular, um Swali, Dr Pujaswali, Swali, she's just become a doctor, who's been working on um, disease genomes, so metagenomes uh, within that project. Mm-hmm. So I started, I talked about the inception of that project in Ancestors, And I'm able to kind of bring some of those updates into into Crypt, including, I think I can say because it's been published now, evidence of Bronze Age Age plague in Britain, which is just incredible.
2: Excellent. So that's next spring. Yes. Great stuff. Well, thanks for coming to chat, Alice, and good luck with Wolf Road. Thank you very much.
0: That was Alice Roberts talking to comment and culture editor Alison Flood and her daughter Jenny about Wolf Road, which is out now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab by New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Timothy Revel. For more like this, as well as our other regular shows, please subscribe to the New Scientist Podcasts feed. Bye for now.
2: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.